Scripture comes from John, the Gospel of John, chapter 20. Uh, this is Easter Day in the text. Uh, the disciples know that Jesus is not in the tomb, but they're still trying to figure out exactly what happened. John chapter 20, starting in verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. When he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Here ends the reading of God's word. The disciples are gathered in this room. They haven't seen Jesus yet. There's been rumors. Some of them have gone to the tomb and seen it empty. Some of the women uh, have seen the empty tomb. Uh, even rumors that some of them have seen Jesus alive, but most of the disciples have not. So they're hanging out, and they're hanging out, the text is very specific about this, in a room that is locked for fear of the Jews. Remember, two days ago, they've seen their master, uh, their rabbi, murdered, killed on a cross because of what he was teaching. They are followers of this murdered one. Okay? And they don't know if they're next or not. So they're in there. They've got all these locked doors. You can imagine that they're terrified. And maybe they're just mourning, too. I mean, they don't, they're not sure what to do next. They just, they've been together for these three years. They just hang. They just stay together, lock the doors, and just try to take in what they've seen this week. And suddenly Jesus is standing in the locked room with them. We're not sure if he walks through the door or simply appears in the midst. The text is silent about how Jesus can do this, but he just is there. They don't know that he's coming. They don't expect him. He doesn't knock on the door. He's just there. And so he says to them, peace be with you. You can imagine they might need to hear that, right? They're freaked out. They're scared already. They're on edge. They're in mourning. Their emotions are totally shot. And suddenly Jesus is right there. The text doesn't say it, but they were probably jumping and screaming and cursing and going to the corner of the room because this Jesus totally surprises them. They do not expect a dead man to suddenly be in the locked room with them. He says, peace. And he shows them the scars on his hands and on his wrists. We know that from the text that Thomas is not there because later... Thomas will actually come and feel those wounds and, and because he can't believe that Jesus was there. The text says that the disciples' fear turned to gladness at seeing that Jesus is there. Uh, but maybe that was a little slow process, right? I mean, get over it, catch your breath. And he repeats the phrase again, peace be with you. I wonder why he repeats it. Are there still those who are afraid? Maybe not everybody's that happy. Or is there a sense of shame 
Remember that Peter's there and, and he totally denied Jesus, but none of the disciples were with him. And so maybe they say, okay, they get over the initial fear of Jesus being suddenly in the room. And then they think, well, we kind of abandoned him. I mean, here we are, he's died, and we are just in this locked room hiding away. Then Jesus says this amazing phrase, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. No more hiding behind locked doors. No more simply just following Jesus. The disciples are being sent. And he breathed on them. I wonder what that was like. The text just says he breathed on them. Does he just go, that's... Is there a kind of a wind that comes through? We don't get any kind of description except he says, receive the Holy Spirit. We know that it's not till Pentecost that they receive that in this mighty and powerful way. But right there, he breathes on them and somehow they have it. And then Jesus gives them this amazing authority. If you forgive sins of others, they're forgiven. You withhold forgiveness of any. It is withheld. Jesus gives these disciples the authority to forgive or withhold forgiveness. I mean, there's so much going on in just these little five verses, but I, I want to zero in and try to think about this text through the particular phrase, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. First question we've got to answer is, how did the Father send Jesus? Well, we know a couple of components of it, right? Number one, Jesus is sent by the Father based on a motivation of love. What does John 3.16 say? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Right? So the first thing we know about how the Father sent Jesus is it's based on love. We know that it's also focused on the kingdom. The message that Jesus pronounces is the kingdom of God is here. And we have trouble with this language of kingdom because we don't use language of kingdom. We don't have a king. We don't understand how this kind of works. But in those days, you had kings. And when you had a king, you had an area that was ruled by that king where the king could make the decisions that they want. And we called that a kingdom. So Jesus was announcing, hey, my kingdom's here. I'm the king. You don't have a kingdom without a king. I'm the king. And now things are going to start going my way. And the belief that Jesus has, that the church has held on to is, that not only does Jesus start that, but we look forward to the day where there's no alternative perspective. Every knee bows, every tongue confesses, Jesus to be Lord, Jesus to be King. We also notice in the way the Father sent Jesus that it, he doesn't announce this kingdom with power. He announces this kingdom, he brings in this kingdom through humility and through sacrifice. So, if the, Jesus says, how the Father sent me, so now I send you, that must mean that we are in some way, and they were in some way, sent. The word sent is actually the same word which we get the word apostles from. The word apostles just means sent ones, ones who are sent. Great Commission talks about us needing to go, that you have ministry to do, a purpose, a plan. Jesus already started this with his disciples, by the way. Very early on in his ministry, he sends out the disciples two by two, sends them to different areas to start to do great things and to proclaim the kingdom, which is amazing because Jesus hasn't died yet. They don't really know that much. They don't really understand that much very early on, and yet Jesus sends them out anyway. Sends them out to do what? To love those in need. 
to announce the kingdom and to humbly sacrifice yourself, to give of yourself in the service of other people. Not with power. If somebody resists you in Jesus' ideal, you dust the, feet, the dust off your feet, you shake the dust off your feet, and you move on to the next. It's not about power, it's about love. And when you understand this idea that we are sent, opens up, I think, the rest of the text. Jesus knows that eventually he's leaving. This is one of the last few times he's going to see them. He's going to pop in and see them every once in a while. But he's done being with them all the time. His mission, his kingdom is not going to be run by him on earth anymore. He's handing over the keys to that kingdom. And he's actually doing that with the authority. That they have the authority to forgive or to not forgive. To continue the ministry. There is a serious sense of sentness by these disciples. Sentness. They are sent ones. And so we need to think about this, I think, in our own lives. And here's the problem. The problem is we have several misconceptions about how we are sent in the church. And the church has a tendency, and pastors have a tendency, to perpetuate some of these misconceptions. Wrong assumption number one is that ministry is done in the church. And particularly, we think, ministry is done by the pastor. But that is not what the Bible says. What the Bible says is we are each called. We each have things set out before the foundation of the world for us to do. The church has had a tendency to perpetuate the idea that ministry is what happens here and what's happened through this. And it's what happens with programs of this body. And we're paying a pastor, right? Shouldn't the pastor be doing all the ministry? Pastor is the one who has the seminary training. But do you see how limiting that is? It limits ministry to only what happens here. It limits ministry only to what the pastor is capable of doing. The pastor doesn't know all the people that you know. I don't know all the people. I don't go into your workplaces, and I don't know your family, and I don't know your neighbors. I can't possibly know all the people that all of you know. It's limiting in ministry to think that way. And, and it, it, it perpetuates a second wrong assumption. We live in a culture that is bought into this idea that there's a distinction between sacred and secular. That you keep your personal religious beliefs personal and then you go to work and you make decisions and you vote and you do all these things, putting those things aside. I'm going to tell you right now, the Bible has no idea what that concept is. You are you. You can't divide your life into these little components. The fact that we even try is pretending, right? You ever had a really bad thing happen in one area of your life and have it not affect any of the other ones? You lose someone in this area of your life, it's going to affect how you do all these other things because you're a whole person. We can't divide our lives neatly into little areas. It just doesn't work that way anyway. And it was never supposed to. If you'd ever asked Jesus how his spiritual life was doing, he would not know how to answer that question. As opposed to what? As opposed to another area of my life? I'm who I am. That's the Jewish understanding uh, that I'm a body and a spirit and together those make a soul. I'm a whole person. There's no dividing. There's no sacred and secular. You understand how important this is? I think, I think the church has and pastors have without meaning to implied that ministry happens here and then when you go to work it's not ministry anymore because it has no church's stamp 
or because I work in a school or I work in a setting where I can't talk about Jesus. That's not ministry. Ministry is what happens when you can talk about Jesus and when you're on Sunday morning. And that, that line, biblically, doesn't make any sense at all. Ministry is all the time. In fact, this is the least of ministry right here, what we're doing. You know what we're doing right now? We are prepping for ministry. This is the equipping part of the ministry that takes place. See, we, we've had another wrong assumption here. That ministry is about gathering rather than sending. That what we want to do is try to get people here. We want to gather together. Right? But Jesus, Jesus doesn't have any patience for locked rooms. He doesn't have any patience for gathering, closing all the doors, and just being ourselves. That is not what being sent means. He wasn't sent that way. And we are not sent that way either. We need to be kingdom focused. The idea isn't just that this building or this property or our ministry or things that session has approved or things that the deacons do. No, no, no. There's all kinds of other places where God is still king. That's the kingdom piece, right? That when you, when you are a grandparent with your grandkids, that God is Lord of that and that you have a ministry and you're sent to that. And when you go to work, you are sent to that. And when you talk to your neighbor, you are sent to that. And I apologize that the church has perpetuated any idea other than that that's real ministry. That I would rather you not do ministry here if you, that means you're going to do ministry somewhere else. You're going to have that kind of impact. Right? Everybody see the difference? We do this to prepare for that. Wrong assumption number four is that we feel like we need to wait for special training or permission to do ministry. And this interest, in the last couple of days, I, I do some work at, uh, on ropes courses, doing rock climbing and belaying and all this stuff. So I spent the last couple of days up at Slippery Rock getting trained so I could pick up some hours there every once in a while. So I was up in cables about 50 feet in the air. We were learning all this rescue stuff. And I got this new certification that's out about rescuing and uh, facilitating groups. Do you know, I've been doing this for like 16 years. And I never got that certification, right? It was great. I got to learn all kinds of skills. But, but the skills don't make me, and the knowledge doesn't make me... Uh, ready or qualified to do that. The experience that I have does. I'm qualified when I start. It's great to get the training. And this is where I think the church gets confused. You don't need to be, you're qualified to be sent right now. Remember those disciples early in their ministry? You're qualified to be sent right now. You already know everything that you need to do to have ministry. And if you don't, if you don't know everything, you need more knowledge, you need some more ideas, that's exactly what the church is for, right? You go out and you bump up against a question that you've never heard, already don't know the answer to, then you call me and we start working it out. Or you go out and you go, you go to work and you're really kind of beat down because you're up against just a bad culture and people that are down and you're trying to be salt and light and witness in that moment and you're like, oh, I'm just bored down. Then you come to worship and you get support from other people. And we sing together and we shake hands and we affirm one another. Here is where you get equipped. Here is where you get support. But don't ever wait on the church to give you permission to do ministry. I actually think it's backwards. I think you ought to try to surprise me. Okay? In a safe way, right? 
There's some surprises that are good and some surprises that are bad. I would love to find out later that you're doing ministry. Like you don't have to get training by me and you don't have to get permission by me and you don't have to run everything by this session. Just start caring about the people around you. Start caring about things. What if God lays... What if sometimes the, the Bible has, has this understanding of what's called a burden? That sometimes the Holy Spirit gives you a burden. Something that you care about. Something that you're bothered by. I've heard it also called a holy discontent. Something you just can't take in the world around you. And you, you look at it and it bothers you and you want to do something about it. Let that guide your ministry. Let that guide your sentence. What do you care about? What does your heart break for? Do those things. Here's what I would say. Ministry happens a lot more away from here than here. And we need to get that right. This is the place that you get equipped. So start. Start ministry. Start looking at your work. Start looking at being a grandparent. Start looking at being a neighbor. Start looking at at the relationships that you have and say, how can I be sent? How is God sending me to this? I also think that Jesus often sends people out in pairs. Which means if you're going to really start being sent, you need to start finding people that also have the same burden. That's partially what church does too. Who else cares about that thing? Share your ministry with the church because you might find other people that are like that. And when you need support and you need help and you need training, that's the kind of stuff I would love to do. That's the kind of stuff as a church we need to do. But we need to be about being sent. What is the Holy Spirit leading you to do? Because I'm telling you, if the church becomes too much about gathering in locked rooms, it's not going anywhere. It's not going anywhere just because we don't meet people, but it's also not going anywhere because it's not true to our calling. We are sent. What are you being sent to? Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would work in our lives. Bother us with things that are burdens, with things that we need to deal with, with... um, people that need cared for, places we can serve. Help us to feel a sense of sentness. And help us as a church to not be about bringing people, not be about uh, having to authorize everything, but a place of support and training and preparation for our sentness. Lord, in everything we do as a church and in our lives, let Jesus be glorified, for he is the king and he is the one that saves us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.